guys, welcome to the podcast, Happy and Single. This is going to be episode 35. And today we have a very, very special guest, one of my dear friends, uh, Jim Christian. And Jim is, you know, if you kind of think about Mickey Mouse and like how happy Mickey is and all the Disney characters, that would be my friend, Jim Christian. <laughs> he, he, actually, he actually has a podcast that is Disney focused on Disney and all the magic that happens there. It, he'll tell us about a little bit later and we'll put all that stuff in there. But I'm so grateful to have Jim. You know, I think of, when I think of happiness, he's really one of the people that I think about. And I'm so excited that he's, you know, been willing to come on here and, you know, and just chat with me. And, you know, today we're just going to sit and have a chat about happiness and kind of see where it goes. So I want to just give you a little bit of time, Jim, and take a second and, you know, introduce yourself and share whatever comes to your mind, man. Sure. Uh, happy to be here. You know, and uh, always love talking to you. So that's a good thing. Uh, born and raised in Murray, Utah. Um, went to Murray High School, graduated from the University of Utah with a BFA in musical theater, of all things. Then went off to graduate school at Illinois State University, where I got an MFA in acting. Started teaching at Eastern Kentucky University, was there for four years, went to San Diego State University, where I headed up their master's program in musical theater, at which time I got married and became a father, and then uh, moved back to Utah in 1988 at Weber State University, and retired from there in 19, no, in 2015. And uh, so I've been retired. And the reason that I qualify for being single on here is because I lost my wife to cancer. And so I became a single parent. And I'm sure that a lot of you out there who are listening share that uh, because single comes in all different shapes and flavors. So that's basically me in the super fast nutshell. It, it, it's funny we go through we go through life so fast and we don't a lot of times have time to talk with people like having known jim for i don't know how many years it's been we we participated in the hillcomore pageant together where I, i've been there like seven times and i think he might have even been there more than i have just how, how many were you four okay just four yeah you you were the senior advantage on me when i <laughs> But, you know, I had the privilege to work with him there as he was one of the directors. And I was I was in one of the scenes that he directed at one time over, you know, over many times. And it's really interesting that that, you know, that just occurs to me that I didn't know much about your life story. Yeah. You know, we're, we're so busy running around at whatever we're doing mm -hmm. that we don't take a moment. I mean, I had no idea that you'd gone to all these colleges and that your majors were in actual acting. I mean, that just, I mean, it makes total sense because of <laughs> you know, your level of skill. And I mean, I've even seen on your Facebook and stuff, how many of your former students are like, just, you know, just love you to death, man. Just like, love you like crazy. Well, it's funny. If you give love, you get love. Well, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say like, you make people feel so incredibly special when they're with you. 
you make people feel so important and like they matter. Like if, if there's an entire world that doesn't care about them, if you're their friend, they know absolutely that you care. Well, I, I think something that feeds into that for me, in fact, a couple of things, um, you know, I talked about being a widower, but I also didn't get married until I was 28 years old. You know, so I, I knew the single life very, very well, you know, and I, I went through all of the, well, when are you going to find somebody and sit down, you know, settle down or, you know, you know, why aren't you dating? You know, what, blah, blah, blah. Hey, I've got you lined up for this. And it's like, please don't, you know, <laughs> I mean, I've, I think I've experienced most of the flavors of single that are out there. But besides that, when I was growing up, I, I experienced my fair share of bullying. Um, I always grew up as the shortest and smallest person in my class, all the way until I got some height going into high school. And so the, the one virtue of that was I was so small and wimpy that there was no, there was no glory in beating me up. So I was never in a fight. But, you know, I just, I just took, you know, teasing and mockery and heat, you know, and all those kinds of things and spent a fair amount of time feeling like an outsider. Um, even though I, I had a generally happy life, but it has made me very much a champion of the underdog. So that when I see somebody who is isolated, when I see somebody who, who is hurting, when I see, see somebody who I can tell, man, they don't feel worthy. They don't feel like they ought to be here or they can't, they can't rise from the position that they're in. They automatically get extra attention from me because I want to see them succeed. I want to see them recognize what they've got inside so that they can become more than who they are right this very second. You know, Jim, that's, that's beautiful. It is interesting. I find that, so, I mean, if, even for myself, I was, I was bullied, picked on, and I yeah. mean, I wasn't like, I wasn't, I wasn't super tiny. Mm -hmm. I wasn't the size I am now. Like these yeah. days, nobody right. really messes with me. Yeah. Because I won't let them. Right. You weren't I Buff mean, Bob back then. No, I mean, but now, like, yeah, no, nobody messes with me because I just, I just took a stand, mm -hmm. I took a stand that, hey, like, I'm not, I'm not gonna be that person, right? And it's really interesting because I think a lot of times we look at someone, you know, like I mentioned with you, and we never understand what they've gone through. Yeah, we never understand that. Everybody around us has had challenges. Everybody and continues to have them. Yeah, it's it's like I was just watching a movie and they were playing the song like Poison. Every rose has its thorn. Yep. And like, if I had just been watching this, that probably would have come to me. But no matter how great everybody's life looks, everybody's got their hard parts. Oh yeah. And. I mean, what, what helped you? Because I'm sure there are even people today that feel still bullied. Yeah. And like, what, what was it that helped you in your life to get to the point that you are now? Because like, you're not fake happy, like you're genuinely happy. 
Like, I can tell. I know that about you. There's a total difference between, I'm amazing. I'm wonderful. Mm, and inside, yeah. we're like, my life is horrible. Yeah, we know those people. <laughs> um, the, I'm, I'm definitely a collector of sayings and mottos and phrases. And every time something comes across my path, that's like, oh, that's good. Oh, that's golden. I record it. Either I write it down or I write it in my brain or I start to use it, you know, in my everyday vernacular. And some of the things that have made a difference for me, well, one of the first things is growing up, you know, I, I mean, I had great parents. I had lovely parents, but they liked me to be a certain way. And so I was the textbook nerd growing up. I lived and died by my grades, you know, because I wasn't big and physical. And uh, so, yeah, right down to the carrying a briefcase in junior high and the plastic pocket pencil protector and the glasses and the very conservative haircut, conservative clothes. My parents dressed me throughout school. You know, I was never somebody who went out and bought my own clothes. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of the identity that I had. I was, I was one of the smart kids. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just enjoyed doing what I did. And then when I graduated from high school in 1972, so everybody's got a frame of reference of which generation I am, um, I got a job at a, a, in the men's department of a major department store. So I started having some money and I got a discount on clothes. So I started dressing myself and I got contact lenses and I started letting my hair grow because it was just early seventies and everything. And I went off to college. <clears throat> well, when I got to college, I was a completely different person in appearance and nobody knew me except one or two people that I had a class or two with that I'd gone to high school with. And so people started to perceive me completely differently. And I realized the only limitations I put on me are the limitations that I put on me. Other people can have perceptions about me. And if I don't like the perceptions that they have about me, and I want to change them, I can. I can change perception. Um, I don't want other people to be measuring me on their yardstick. I want to be able to go, no, this is my yardstick. And if I don't like your yardstick, I'm not going to worry about measuring myself on your yardstick. And that opened my eyes to possibilities, you know, and thinking, gosh, I can kind of do what I want. I can choose what I want to do. And just having the ability to think in terms of options rather than limitations became major for me. Um, the, there are definitely two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are problem-oriented and people who are solution-oriented. And if you're somebody who's problem-oriented, you're the one who sits around going, oh, my life is so awful. It's so bad, you know, and I'm going to post my whole wounded heart on public media, you know, and I'm going to solicit all of this fake liking and, oh, yeah, oh, you poor thing, you know, or 
I can go, look, there's a situation I don't like. I'm going to change it. I'm going to fix it. I'm not going to wait for somebody else to come in and fix my life. You know, I'm going to be the captain of my soul. And throughout my life, I have come in contact with those people in such abundance that in a split second, I can go problem-oriented, solution-oriented, solution-oriented. And I can see which direction people go. And if I can, I want to awaken in the problem-oriented people the ability to find solutions. And if somebody is solution-oriented, well, great, I'm just there to help grease the wheels that they're already greasing. Um, The people who are solution-oriented are constantly moving forward. They are the people who see a problem and go, oh, there's a problem. So we could fix it by A, B, or C. Well, I'm going to try one of them. If it doesn't work, I'm going to move to the next one. If it doesn't move to, you know, work, I'm going to move to the next one. I'm going to keep doing that until it's not a problem anymore. And I can move smoothly along until another problem comes up. And then it's going to be a solution. I'm going to find a solution. Um, We've heard so many talks and lectures about you know, when we have challenges in life, when we have disappointments, when we have failures, we can either let them define us or refine us. And people who let their, their negatives define them stay in the negative. And they actually nourish those negatives. They can either take those negatives, you know, and spiral downward or just spin their wheels and stay in exactly the same place. People who go, okay, wow, that was bad. How do I prevent that from happening again? Or that's part of my story now. How do I incorporate that into my story and still continue progressing, still keep moving forward? And so it doesn't matter whether we have financial problems or career problems or relationship problems or health problems, whatever problems come into our lives, Okay, that's part of our story. That's part of our story. Is that going to be the final chapter of our story? Or is that, well, gosh, that's only chapter four. I've got so much more to write. I've got so much more to do. And so always having a kind of perspective that allows you to not sit and rock in a corner with the lights off. Because... That puts all the focus on you. It doesn't put focus on anybody else in the world. And other people are going to be your source of happiness. You know, and you can't wait for them to make you happy. You do something for them and you'll both be happy. I mean, you know, there's there's so much in what you just said that I really like. And, you know, what it, what it brought up for me is a few things. The first thing, when you were talking about yardsticks, mm-hmm. there's a motto that I adopted from you know, one of our early religious leaders, Brigham Young. Mm-hmm. And he said, I care about two opinions in the world, what I think of me and what God thinks of me. Mm-hmm. And I adopted that quite a few years ago when I actually played Brigham Young in, in Nauvoo back in 2008. Okay. And it's made a huge difference in my life just by honestly not caring, like not pretending not to care. Yeah. But honestly not caring. 
And I think when we're not like, don't get me wrong. There's, there are times that I do think about what people say, what they think. Sure. As, as we all do, it's just not a big deal anymore. It's like, well, yeah, there's going to be times that I'm going to think about that. Right. Because when we're so fo- when our energy is so focused on getting other people to like us, it's like, I think it was Jerry Seinfeld that said, we spent all this money to impress all these people that we don't even like. We don't even care. <laughs> and they don't, and they don't even like us. Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's interesting with possibility. So I, I am known as the it's possible guy. Mm-hmm. As corny as it sounds, and, I, and I've kind of fought God on that a little bit, and then I'm kind of just owning it because that's just what he said to do. Yeah. But it's about teaching everybody that their life is possible. Like yeah. every, everything about it. And when you were talking about story, I was thinking about any single movie, if there was no opposition, would be a horrible movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, there have to be obstacles. And when we've got obstacles in life, um, you know, being involved in theater and the fine arts and performance, you know, it's all about storytelling. And the thing that I find is, if there's a story where someone is not rising above, I'm not interested. I am not interested in hearing about somebody failing and failing and failing because that's not my world. Now, granted, there are people who have challenges that feel insurmountable, and I do not disrespect those at all. But I don't need to nourish that side of myself in terms of, oh, yeah, I need to go see a movie that's going to just break my heart and make me hurt and just make me wallow in the mud with other people who are wallowing in the mud because it's like, oh, hey, look, problem-oriented people. There's not time for that for me. you know. And the thing is, if there's somebody who's wallowing in the mud and somebody comes along and helps them out of it or they help themselves out of it, great, I'm there all day long. Love those kinds of stories because it's important for every one of us to be the hero of our own story. We have to be our own hero because if we're waiting around for somebody else to do it, it might not happen. And granted, we can, you know, whether through faith or relationships or whatever, we can partner with other people to help us move forward on that journey. Well, and you, and you said something really interesting that I want to pick up on because I think for a lot of people, this is actually a really hard thing, especially in our faith mm-hmm. of setting boundaries. Like we have to set boundaries around people that are not our people. Like we can invite them out of the mud. Mm-hmm. But there's plenty of people. Like I've been, you know, I remember one particular instance, I was just out at, you know, App- Applebee's or something, you know, eating their unlimited whatever appetizer. Exactly. The half and, price apps. Boom. Yeah, exactly. The half, the half price appetizer. And I noticed because I was sitting at the bar that all of these people around the bar, many of them came probably, I mean, they knew each other. Like they, mm-hmm. this is Applebee's. We're not talking of some like... Dive. Not, not that my knowledge <laughs> of bars is like extensive, but you know, we're not talking about like some great 
bar, like we're talking about Applebee's and these people apparently got together quite often, maybe even nightly. Mm-hmm. Talk about all their sorrows and all their heartaches and all their things they're going through, but most of them don't want help out of the mud. Yeah. It's like even in coaching, I used to say, I will help somebody even if it kills me. There's mm-hmm. times that they nearly did kill me. Yeah. Because it was just like, no, come on. Don't you see? Your life right. could be so much better. Yep. You know, and on a call this morning with my mentor, like, he basically said, like, guys, if you don't, if you have someone, if you don't have somebody that wants something, you don't have a client. Yeah. And, and so we have, so people have to want for themselves. I felt at least in my own life, some of the people that need the most help, mm-hmm. I've had to completely put my boundaries up because it's kind of like, if you give a mouse a cookie, yeah. there's, one, there's one particular person I'm thinking of that, you know, they're kind of special needs and stuff and mm-hmm. they could really use a lot of help. But the second I answer that message, my phone's going to blow up. Everything else is going to blow up and I'm not going to have any time. Yeah. And sometimes that can be really hard for people to say, like, I, I, I got to help all these people. And it's like, no, you don't. You, right. If people don't want to be helped, you can be there for them for a moment. Mm-hmm. But you can't be there, ride or die because they'll probably kill you. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, so many different thoughts come to mind as you're talking about that. Um, One of the first ones is the uh, airline safety speech. If you're traveling with a small child, put your mask on first so that you can help somebody else. And if you don't have your mask on, you can't help people. And so if somebody is sucking up all of your oxygen then you are not in a position to actually help them. You have to be grounded. You have to be safe with yourself in order to be a resource for somebody else. Um, Another analogy that I came up with, just talking one time, it's like, you know, sometimes we have relationships with people that for one reason or another, they become, you know, consumptive they start to consume us. You know, we might get caught in somebody else's vortex. And as they're swirling down the whirlpool, we might find ourselves swimming against the stream to get out of that whirlpool. And it dawned on me, if I want to be able to save somebody, I can't be in the whirlpool. And I can stand on the shore and throw them a life preserver with a rope tied to it. And if they grab that life preserver, great, I'm going to help reel them in. You know, we can all... We can all win together, but there are people that it doesn't matter how many life preservers you throw at them, they push them away. And if somebody is pushing away the life preservers, we have to recognize I may not be the person to help you. There may be a better solution for you than me. And we all have to get away from having a Messiah complex where we feel like, I am here to save everybody. I am here to save the world. Are you kidding? Are any of us that capable? No, we're not. You know, and we have to allow other people to have their stories where they get to reach out and help somebody else. We may not be that universal antidote. We may not be the panacea for the entire world that can make everything better. But what we can do 
is positive things where we are planted. You know, we can lift where we stand. We can be guided toward those individuals for whom we can make a difference. Heaven knows I've had individuals in my life who made a difference for me, who helped me, who taught me, who rescued me, you know, depending on whatever it was. There was a time when my my cousin's boyfriend pulled me out of the bottom of a pool. You know, I wasn't far gone, but I was under the surface and I wasn't able to get myself back up. I was a small child. I was fairly young, but I remember that guy doing that for me. And so learning to recognize and listen and pay attention so that we follow those impulses that are meant for us and that are meant for other people so that we can we can be there where we need to be. I am a great believer in divine positioning. I believe people are placed where they need to be, when they need to be, whatever they need to be. And some people might go, well, why am I in this awful situation? A, you asked for it. B, somebody else put you there. C, there's something you need to learn by being there. You know, and there's probably more letters of the alphabet, but I'm going to stay, you know, with those things right now. There was a time that I was in a grocery store and I was walking out to my car and it was like, oops, I forgot this one thing. I got to go back. I walked back. I got that. I checked out. I start walking out of the store. Just as I'm walking out of the store, there's an elderly woman who is walking out of the store and she and her husband start walking across the parking lot. And there is a car just slowly approaching with an elderly driver who is looking for a parking space not paying any attention to what's in front of him. And I actually had that moment where I went boom, boom, boom. And I grabbed the elderly woman, wrapped my arms around her, and I banged on the hood of the other car. And the person jolted and stopped. And, you know, we all had a moment. I said, please pay attention. And are you all right? Okay, great. And we all moved on. And I thought, not that I'm a hero, but if somebody, in this case it was me, hadn't been standing right there, assessed that situation, that car could have done a lot of damage, even at a slow speed, to this very elderly woman. And our lives are filled with moments like that, whether we acknowledge them or not. That things are placed, engineered, and shaped so that we can learn from them, we can make a difference. And we can sometimes be placed in situations where we have to solve a problem. And we, we, don't, we don't get to live a problem-free life. Nobody does. And I think that's one of the greatest keys of happiness is accepting the fact that your life will not be simple. Well, there's, I mean, there's so much that I, you know, I heard in that. First of all, I have never heard... I mean, I've heard the, the airplane analogy plenty of times, mm. but I've never, you said it in a way, the part about when somebody else is sucking up all of your oxygen, you can't do anything. Yeah. And sometimes we do. We just have to let people, we have to let people go so we, we can do. help more people. And I think even for me, that's been really, really hard in my life. Yeah. To just, and I think for you know plenty of people listening to this, probably the same way because we we do we feel like we have to have that 
messiah complex of helping everybody yeah the irony of what you said though that i loved the messiah did not help everybody he saved everybody he, mm-hmm. he performed the he performed the atonement right but if people actually look at the scriptures he fed the 5000 he fed the 4000 there's another time when he told everybody to go home and not get a free lunch yes. he really did like yeah. and, and you might know where that's at i i can't remember offhand i just know it's there yeah. but and, and it's okay Mm-hmm. I think so often we we get so inundated with thinking we have to help with the world that we don't focus on us. We don't keep you know, ourselves. For so healthy. many years in my life, I was like, "Oh my goodness, if I charge two people too much money for coaching, then they're not going to be able to afford it. I'm not going to be able to help them." Well, yeah, but if I don't charge them enough, then I'm not going to have the life that I want. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, and, and so there's this balance, and I think far more than not, it's like God is speaking to us through the Spirit. Yeah you know, through the still small voice. Yeah. And oftentimes the adversary, Satan kind of pretends that he is the spirit. He, mm-hmm. tried, he tries to pretend he's like, oh no. And, and he uses, he's so clever. Like, he's like, Joseph, come on. Aren't you going to help that person? What, yeah. would this, what would the savior do? Mm-hmm. And it's just this like cutting ice cold voice. I can't do it for very long. Cause then I feel creeped out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that's that's how he works with us. Mm-hmm. And when we understand that the adversary can mimic every single thing that the spirit can, yeah. except peace. Mm-hmm. And I've been through experiences in my life where that's been made known to me because yeah, I had to know. <laughs> like I just had to, I, I had to know what was the right thing. Because right. if he if he can tempt us to go get lost and helping people that don't want to be helped. Like mm-hmm. the other example that came to my mind is that story about there's a man and he's on top, you know, he's, he's there on top of a house and a boat comes along and he's like, you know, trying to save him. He's like, no, don't worry about me. Somebody else, you know, God will save me. Another boat comes. He's like, God will save me. A helicopter mm-hmm. comes. He's like, God will save me. And he shows up at the pearly gates and he's like, hey, I was a good person. What gives? He's like, well, mm-hmm. I sent you this. I sent you this. I sent you this. Right. But if we don't listen, mm-hmm. and I've even realized more lately of just what, what you hinted to with, with being that divine positioning. Yes. It's a great book, and it's called, I think it's Divine Signatures. I can't remember mm-hmm. the name of the author, but people can look it up. And in there, it gives this story about this missionary that, you know, missionary for our faith, that he was from northern Brazil, and he okay. went on a mission to southern Brazil. And the first door that they knocked, his companion knocked. And then, and then he said, all right, next one's yours. So the first door that this missionary ever knocked, he knocks on the door and opens the door. And there's his sister that he hadn't seen in like years. Wow. They'd, they'd you know, somehow fallen apart or she'd left the family or something like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so she ended up being, becoming his first, his first convert to the church. Wow. It's yes, like, but he says in that book, he says it's not just about that we have these tender mercies, divine timings, um, coincidences, whatever people want to call them. Mm-hmm. It's it's the matter of not that that we have them; it's also the timing of them. It was it was the very first person this missionary talked to. It was yeah. you saying, "Oh, did I forget something?" Or like, 
You know, mm-hmm. I, I need to go back and get something. Yeah. And, the, and the other thing I see in that, that I'm really learning for myself, the more we act immediately when the, when the spirit talks to us, yeah. the more we don't have to wonder. The more mm-hmm. we don't have to like, <clears throat> especially simple things like, oh, let me just go do that. I'll take like three minutes. Because if we don't do it, we'll go back home and wonder about it for 20 minutes or hours even it's like oh my goodness i should have talked to that person i should have not talked to that person and sometimes we do the whole flower petal peeling thing where do i follow do i not follow do i follow Mm -hmm. if it takes less than a minute follow we have no idea what's gonna happen yeah and and then the crazy leprechaun voice comes in he's like no this might not work out it's and it's you know this small voice is like but it might. Mm-hmm. And when we just follow that, it's like every single step that we're willing to take to follow the spirit mm-hmm. is just that next step towards this incredible plan of happiness that we're going to have happiness along that path. Yeah. But especially towards the end, people that really begin to get this of following and acting, mm-hmm. they begin to experience a level of happiness fairly similar to yours where their life is just awesome most of the time and they're just happy and it all comes from following the spirit. That's where it comes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I could talk ad nauseum about experiences in my life where if this hadn't happened, this couldn't have happened. Then this couldn't have happened. Then this couldn't have happened. And just one thing after another, that I'd love know. to hear a few more. Um, okay, okay, I'll tell I'll tell you one. When well, I'm going to preface this with another great truth of mine, um, because change is scary, you know, and most of us don't want to, you know, upset the equilibrium of this delicate balance of whatever life we are living, and. I had been so dedicated toward getting a teaching position at a university that I did my four years of undergrad, my two years of grad, and boom, I was ready to go out there and conquer the world. And mercifully, somebody taught me how to send out my resume and apply for jobs. And they said, you know, anytime you read a job description that sounds like they're describing you, that's the job you're going to get. There might be some that you go, I could do that job. I'm qualified for that job. But if they sound like they're describing you, you'll probably get that job. And it's been true every time. But so I got my job teaching in Kentucky and I was there for four years. And for me, it just didn't. It was great. It was a great teaching opportunity for me to learn and make a lot of mistakes, you know, and become better and refine my techniques and learn more materials. But I got to a point where I was absolutely miserable. At the end of three to four years, I felt so dead-ended. I thought, I'm never going to find anybody to make me happy. I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to this. I'm not going to grow or flourish or any of the other little lies that we get told in our head. And so I got to a point where I thought, you know what? Even if I don't do another day of theater in my life, I can still be happy. I can, I can let go of this and go find a different career 
and that's okay. And all of a sudden, my theater work got better because I was not so desperate for it to all work. And it was just kind of a let go and let flow, let things happen. And so I applied for some jobs around the country. Uh, one was at Rexburg, Idaho, uh, for a one-year teaching replacement. One was at Northern Colorado University in Greeley, and the one at San Diego State University. And with all three of those, I got nibbles. They all wanted to interview me. And it was like, great. Well, the one I'd really like is San Diego, because that's a master's program, and it's a great location, and I'll be further west again. And uh, at that time, I was working at the university, but I was also going to be doing summer work performing at a theme park, um, Kings Island in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I would have to go up there on weekends for rehearsals, which was about two hours away, and be up there on Saturday and Sunday and come back for Monday teaching. And this was back before cell phones and answering machines and all that good stuff. And so I applied. And on my resume, I had included my father's phone number in Utah, because I thought, if you can't reach me, this is a second number where you can reach me. Well, I finished teaching my classes one Friday, and um, I had actually been called for an interview in Idaho, and they were going to fly me out, and it was like I would be there just over the weekend and get back in time for classes. You know, and um, I was going to be able to do my, well, I had like a Friday night rehearsal and an all day Saturday rehearsal. And I was going to fly out Saturday night. They were going to actually interview me on Sunday and then put me on a plane to get me back for Monday. I was like, okay, well, that's great. Cool. So what happened is I was all packed for that. And I finished teaching my last class and my pattern was I would finish class and go directly to my car to drive up to Cincinnati for my practice that evening. And this particular day, I started out of my class and I went, oh, I need to get this one thing out of my office. I walk into my office and my phone is ringing. And I pick up the phone and it's my father. And he said, I just got off the phone with Merrill Leslie, the department chair in San Diego State, at San Diego State University. They want to interview you. And I was like, oh, score. This is great. He, and he said, unfortunately, their department hasn't given them a budget to fly you out there. I said, well, when do they want to interview me? As soon as possible. Okay, dad, do me a favor. See if you can look at this airline ticket that I've got to Idaho and see if we can adjust it so that when I'm through in Idaho, I can fly down to San Diego and then fly back home. Okay, but I've got to leave right now or I'll be late. Okay, great. So I, I leave, I go get in my car, I drive up and I get to Cincinnati and on my break, I call my dad and he said, we got the flights worked out. Here's the deal, you'll know it's gonna be, um, you'll go up to Idaho and then your flight is gonna come through Salt Lake City, through San Francisco, down to San Diego. I talked to the department chair down there. They'll pick you up, interview you that night and put you on a red-eye flight to Atlanta that'll get you back to Lexington, Kentucky, and you can be back for classes on Monday morning. And I did, and I got the job. And 
there were things that stalled them making that decision. But I knew I, I also at the interview in Idaho, they liked me and they wanted me, but it was only a one-year appointment. But I knew that I could leave and go do that appointment. So I packed everything up. I put it into storage because I was going to go work in Cincinnati for the summer. And I also was going to go down and do a quick job in Florida before I went to Cincinnati. And so I had everything packed in storage. And San Diego kept saying, I don't know. We can't make a decision. It's got to go through you know, the upper echelons through the government because it's a state university and stuff. I was like, okay, okay. The day before I left, my apartment was empty except for my phone and my sleeping bag and the luggage I was taking to Florida and what I was going to live on for the summer up in Cincinnati. They were going to come and connect my phone the next morning before I jumped in the car and drove to Florida. So there I am, my phone rings. It's the guy from San Diego and he said, We've got the job. And I had talked to the people in Idaho and they said, we understand your situation. We want you so much that we'll hold while you get that decision. But if you get that decision, we understand that's a permanent tenure track. Take that um, and, you know, bless you. Great. And so everything worked out. And there are more details. But ultimately, if I hadn't walked back to my office, if I hadn't put my dad's phone number on that resume, if I hadn't been offered the job in Idaho so that I could pack up and be ready to go, if the people in San Diego hadn't been willing to interview me on a Sunday night in an airport, none of it would have happened, but it did. And, you know, not every story in my life has been that magical. You know, not everything has been that perfect, but that's, that hasn't been the only time. That's just one example. And when you were talking about the whole thing of the boat, the boat and the helicopter, one of the biggest challenges we face in life is acknowledging when we're being helped, is recognizing when we're getting a lifeline and grabbing onto it and being active and moving, you know, and saying, you know, there's this opportunity, oh, well, it might not work out. Oh, good job, Satan. You just scared me out of success. You just made me doubt myself. And we, we have to not doubt our own capabilities, especially when disappointment comes. Just because we try and fail one time doesn't mean, well, that road is closed. Um, I learned to knock and knock and knock again sometimes. And something that was really healthy for me is that I actually had a lot of disappointment or a lot of getting into something through the back door or being the second choice, but the first choice didn't come through. And so number two, you got moved up. And some people could go, oh, well, sour grapes. I was number two. You didn't want me in the first place. It was like, you know what? I was number two and I got the job. Boom. Hooray. I'm happy. I am happy. I had to be patient but I got it. And especially being someone who directs productions. And I'm constantly, I mean, I, I have seen tens and thousands of people audition over the years, probably even more. And there have been so many situations where, especially with students, somebody would audition for me and I didn't have a place for them. 
And so they would audition again. And I didn't have a place for them. And then they would eventually audition. It was like, I have the perfect place for you. But we have to understand that just because we want something doesn't mean we're right for it. And just because we have a desire for something doesn't mean that we get it right away. And addressing the whole single situation. Like I said, I have been single more of my life than I have been married. You know, because of that darn cancer, I was only married for 10 years out of my soon to be 67. That's not a lot of time. And whether it was my bachelor years or my widowhood, I've had options that, you know, it's like, well, do I take this course? Do I take this course? Well, what course do I feel guided to take? What course am I supposed to take? And you take that course and you don't look back. You don't play the what if game. You don't play the, oh, I should have done this. At the time that I had the opportunity to go teach in San Diego, at the end of my second summer working at Kings Island as a performer and a dance captain and a swing performer, the director choreographer of that production, who I had worked with for two years and I had been her assistant, at the end of that summer, just before I was getting ready to leave for San Diego, she said, I would like you to come and work for me as one of my assistants. And at that time, she was the director of entertainment for Norwegian Cruise Lines for all of their ships. And eventually, I got to go do a piece of work for her on the Queen Elizabeth II, the QE2. But when she offered me that job, I was like, oh, why am I not twins? Why can't I send one off to that life and one off to the life of education? Because one was a great adventure and the other was stability. And I chose the course of stability. And not that this is the be all and end all because of the nature of this podcast, but a year after I made that move, I was married. And a year after that, I was a father. And if I hadn't taken that course, who knows where I would have spun off into. Well, and if you're willing to share, I'd love to hear, I want to share one thing before you share yeah. this, but I'd love to hear how you met your why. And I'd also love to hear why you felt San Diego State was so important. Before you share that, I just kind of had a thought, as you said, like we have to make a decision to go and not look back. It's like, for example, when people are going on a path in a cave, mm -hmm. they carry a rope. Yeah. However, if, if you start going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, pretty soon you're going to be tied up in that rope. Yeah. I think so many people, they get tied up in that rope. Yep. They get tied up and they're not, and, and not even necessarily a rope, maybe even a spider web that it's just super hard to get out of. Yes. One, one part, I mean, it's been super hard for me to understand is that you have to make a decision because there, like, there's so many things in the world that I want to do, and there's yeah. plenty of them that I try, and there's plenty of them I actually do decently. Yeah. But there's so many other things that I can't do, whether that you know be personal choices or you know other reasons. But we do. We have to make choices, and so. But when we keep going back and forth, it is. It's like that spider web that just wraps us up, and you know, in the Book of Mormon, it talks about this flaxen cord that just 
keeps wrapping us up, wrapping us up. And at first you can break that flax and cords super easy, mm-hmm. but after a while you can't. Yeah. So those are, that was just coming to my mind, but I, I'd love to hear if you're, if you're willing to share like how you sure. met your wife and why San Diego state was so important. Yeah. Well, and I'll just say one thing quickly about your rope in the cave. Mm-hmm. If you've got that rope and you're going through the cave and you realize I'm at a dead end, there's nothing wrong with backing up to the point of that intersection where you chose left and you should have gone right. Well, it's, not, it's not yeah. that we never move slightly backward. It's just that we don't have to go to square one to start all over. And that's what our religious leader, Jeffrey R. Holland, talks about in a story where he said, you know, there was, there was a fork in the road and he went one way. And after mm-hmm. like 600 yards, it was this solid dead end, like yep. nowhere to go. Yeah. And, and he pondered about it and he pondered about it. And he was like, why was I led down that road? And it was so you would know absolutely with certainty the other road. Yes. You know what I mean? I've, I've even experienced that in my life where I actually thought for some reason that I was supposed to, I thought being a seminary teacher was like super noble. Mm-hmm. And my dad had been, he felt like forced to be a seminary teacher. God told him, was like, this is what you're going to do. Like yeah. very strongly, like no, yeah. no doubts about it. And so I was kind of concerned about that. And finally I had this experience where I just got super overwhelmed. And so I just was like, all right, let's go down this path. And then I received an absolute stop sign. It's like, no, you were on the right path. Go back to the path you were on. Right. But sometimes we do, we make up stuff so much, so much in our head. And it's like, you know, God's telling us the exact opposite. He's like, I mean, that's, those are the times that I've had some of the strongest spiritual experiences ever. Yeah. God's like, no, Joseph, this is not your path. Are, do you get this? Are you seeing this? This is not your path. Yeah. And even then, I still think about it at times. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no. One, one of the biggest spiritual blackouts I ever had where it was like I got slammed with like spiritual pitch just like tar just poured all over me I had started talking to this one young woman about getting married and we started talking about it and that night I was tortured and it was like do no 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 do not do not go there and so having to make that U-turn was awkward and uncomfortable and awful. But in hindsight, yeah, yeah. That, that was definitely a what was I thinking kind of moment. Um, so to go to how did I meet my wife? Real, real quick. Or, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I can see you've got a thought in your head there. <laughs> I love how we have this connection, dude. Yes, sir. <laughs> this is cool. Um, that, pitch, that pitch black feeling. I mean, I, I've even felt that there was one time I, I hugged this particular girl mm-hmm. and there was not a good spirit in there. Like it was, yeah. it was just bad news. And like, yeah. I actually literally ran away to the point that she followed me and then said in a matter of speaking, what in the world was that? <laughs> like, why did she yeah. run away? And I couldn't respond. It's like, well, yeah. you have this super, super dark feeling inside of you. And I just want right. nothing to do with you right now. Mm-hmm. But but it's amazing when we pay attention, like how we are so guided by the spirit. Yeah. Oh, this, and for those people that aren't religious, this inner voice, this just this inner GPS. 
that yep. is guiding our lives if we allow it to. Now, yeah. did I have a choice? And I mean, and I, I had this similar thing happen when I was engaged to a girl. God was like, no, Joseph. No, 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 no. Right. And that was super hard because it was like, well, I mean, we're already engaged. Let's just do this. And then she's like, oh, the reason is I have to go on a mission. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's it. Let's go with that. Yeah. Whereas God's message was to me was, hey, get her on a plane and get her out of your life. Yeah. And I didn't listen for a while. <laughs> That's okay. We've okay, all been there. Back, back to the good story. How did, tell us how you okay. your life, man. So um, in my first year at the University of Utah, I was going to go into broadcast journalism. And um, I played the piano. And uh, there were some people in one of my classes that found out I played the piano and they wanted me to play for an audition they had coming up and i was like sure so i started to get to know some of the people in the theater program and i actually ended up getting hired by that company where i played for that audition because i guess they were desperate for men that summer or something but um i saw in the catalog from the pe department they were offering a tap dance course that spring and i thought you know what i took a couple of months of tap when i was six years old that would be fun to get back into. I'm going to, I'm going to try that. So I took, uh, I, I signed up for that class. I went the first day. There were just a couple of other people in the room and the instructor came in and said, you know what, this is too small a class. You know, if we don't make this number like 10, 12, something like that, we have to cancel the class. It's just university policy. I said, well, how long do we have before we have to make that choice? And she said, well, by this Friday, I said, okay, done. So I immediately went and drew up flyers and I posted them in the theater program, offices on the bulletin boards, the dance program, the music program. And at the next class meeting, there were 30 people there. And, you know, I had kind of like talked it up with a couple of people I knew. There were 30 people showed up, one of whom was my future wife. And she was somebody that I saw and I just immediately got fascinated because she just had this outgoing energy and people were drawn to her and man, you know, just, you know, we became good, fast friends. And at the end of that year, she transferred to Southern Utah University, which at that time was College of Southern Utah. And so we were apart. And then I uh, did summer stock work up in Montana two years. And the second year, they needed somebody for the lead in Hello Dolly. And I went, oh, I know somebody would be perfect. So I contacted her and she had contacted them and she got hired. And so we got to work together for a summer. But then I went off to Illinois and was doing graduate work for two years. Then I went to Kentucky for four years. And somewhere in the middle of that, she got engaged, but that got called off. But the whole time I used her as my standard. It was like, man, if I could just meet a girl like Jerry, I would settle down and marry her in a heartbeat. Because at that time, I didn't have self-esteem to think that she would even consider me or think, oh, yeah, I'll move all the way across the country to be with this guy. And then when I got back to San Diego, which was one of the reasons it was important for me to get out west again, because I thought, I'm going to find somebody better than, you know, the, the very, very limited crop of options that I had in Kentucky. Um, I just didn't see anybody who was, you know, 
my mate, you know, my, my counter, my counterpart. And so when we got out to San Diego, I was, you know, back in this part of the country. And anytime I would go home for Christmas, I would get in touch with her and she would always be like, oh yeah, well, a bunch of us are going to a movie tonight. Come with us. Or there's a party at so-and-so's house. Come and go to the party. Great. So it was always all these group settings. And I always, you know, had a great time being around her. And when I got to San Diego, I went, you stupid, stupid man. You've known who was special to you all these years, but you were just afraid and you doubted. And so I went home at Thanksgiving and I called her up. Oh yeah, we're going to a movie tonight. Great. You know, oh, there's a party. Oh no. You know, and so that whole thing, thing. So at Christmas, um, I was back home and I gave her a gift, like a sweater or something. Uh, but I also gave her a gift certificate for an evening out with one of San Diego's most eligible bachelors. And that's exactly how I worded it. <laughs> so I took her out to dinner and we sat there and made small talk for a couple of minutes. And I said, look, there's no way, there's no way to make this not awkward. But I said, I would really like to start a courtship with you. And she said, I would like that very much. And just a matter of days later, we got engaged and six months later, we got married, but we had known each other for 10 plus years and had been great friends that whole time. And so we knew each other. Um, and granted, you know, you get married and then you start finding a lot more things out about people, but still that's how I found her and she found me. Um, and wanting to go to San Diego, I think that was part of the, the drive the little hidden message that was urging me in that direction. Plus it was a good position. It was a good salary. It was definitely an advance career wise. Um, and San Diego, gorgeous place, you know, combination of different things, but it all weaves together in our own story. So had you ever asked her out before that time? Not formally. I, I had called her up because I wanted to do something, but it was always before I got to ask her out, it was like, oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, let's, let's get together tonight. We're all doing this. It was always, we're doing this. And so I got to know her peer group and now some of them are my dearest friends now. But it, I, I have never been a super dater. I have never been really great at dating. So that was part of my dilemma. <laughs> I mean, and that's really interesting because, you know, at least, you know, one thing I kind of talk to people about is, especially with girls, is, you know, put yourself out there a little bit. And that's, that was her way of possibly of showing, how, did you, well, did you ever ask her, like, how long have you been interested after you guys got married? Um, and the truth yeah. all came out. Well, yeah. The fact that she said, I would like that very much gave me a hint that she'd considered this in her mind, plus her best friend, who was one of her roommates in college and who became my best friend later on, had said to her, the minute he asks you, say yes. She saw it before either of us saw it and acknowledged it. So she had, she had been kind of prodded, you know, toward me 
but in her mind, she was like, well, I don't know. I, I mean, he's never made a move you know, or whatever. A slow starter. You know, and, and that is such a beautiful story. And the thing that really lands with me, especially about that, is, and I know, like, I mean, I did a podcast on, like, how do you find, the, you know, is there just one for everybody? And I'm not yeah. saying there is or there isn't. But I think there is a a person that resembles the one. Yeah. And how cool is it that even though you were so slow, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and there's no judgment in that, I'm, I'm pretty slow too when it comes to that stuff. Like, of how God just kind of kept her there waiting for you. Yeah. You know, this yeah. wonderful girl. And I mean, I never had the chance to meet your wife, obviously, but this wonderful woman that was just there. I mean, forgive the forgive the song, but I think it's Richard Marks right there waiting for you. And there yeah. she was, man, like right there waiting for you. And and she was your standard. Yeah. And I and I actually think it's cool to have a standard like that. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that I think is so important is understanding how unique and different every last one of us is. And uh, when my mother passed away while I was in graduate school, my father remarried in six months. And it was a friend that actually my parents had shared a house with during World War II. And she had lost her husband a year before. And she was kind of there to help dad through the process and the grieving and everything. And they just, you know, again, knew each other for a long time. And it just kind of clicked and it made sense. And they both wanted to be married again. For me, Oh, from the time my wife passed away, I mean, the vultures circled and other people were just so ready to just hook me up and I've got somebody for you and all these other things. And it was like, do you know what? I don't want to be married just to be married. I want to be married because I'm in love. I want to be married because there is somebody who matters so much to me that I need to have them in my life. And I have long said, if I ever were to find someone else who makes me feel like my wife made me feel, then I'd be ready and I'd be interested. But I had the love of my life. And I don't need to be greedy. And I don't need to be desperate. And because I became a single parent when my daughter was nine. And so being with her all that time. Yep. It, there were challenges and tough things, but I think she turned out to be an incredible woman, you know, and I wouldn't have traded that experience, you know, be, because she did not want to have another mother. And I didn't know what to run the risk of bringing the wrong person into the equation. Well, I mean, and in that time, did you meet anyone that was even close that you're like, yes, I want this? Um, there were people of interest. So no. <laughs> but but nobody that made me yeah. feel like, okay, yeah, this, this is my next road. I didn't feel the promptings. I didn't feel the urges. I didn't feel that same magic that I had felt with my wife. So I mean, what it sounds to me like 
you're saying is that especially people that are listening to this that have been widowed, it's totally okay if they decide they never want to date again. Yeah. What would you say to those people? Because especially, I mean, especially those widows and widowers out there, like I actually, you know, I have friends that are in that position. Mm-hmm. What would you say to them when everybody's just badgering them like crazy? You know, especially the ones that are like, oh no, you need a, you, you gotta have, you gotta have a new dad for your kid. Your kid's gotta have a father figure and all that other silly stuff that people say. What, what would you say to them? Look at how you're being taken care of already. Um, at the time that my wife passed away, we had five girls close to my daughter's age who all lived in our neighborhood, all of whom had really great mothers. And my daughter had incredible mother role models and figures who were part of our extended family. And her friends became like my other daughters and her sisters to the point where they would travel with us sometimes. You know, one or two of them would go on a trip with us, or we would have a weekend birthday up at the condo, and all the girls would come, and we would have a big party, you know. But if there was ever anything that she needed to talk about that it wasn't like a dad talk, she had mothers to talk to that she could turn to. And there weren't any of those women that I would see as a new wife for me if they had become widowed. But they were just good compliments and they were tender mercies. They were blessings in our lives that helped fill in those kinds of gaps. And something else that I'll talk about, because you know, if we if we talk about our faith, um the vast well, now the majority of adults in our faith are single. They are not married. They are singles. They are either never married, widowed, divorced, whatever. Okay. So even though there's a lovely paradigm of the family, families can be different and families can be unique. And um, there was a situation for me where there were couples in our ward in our neighborhood who would get together and socialize and I would be omitted because they didn't want me to feel awkward or translation, they felt awkward in some situations. And I finally spoke up. I finally spoke up to a couple that I was very close to. And I said, you know, this hurts that I'm excluded because it's my neighbor two doors away and my neighbors across the street and my neighbors are down two more doors, you know, and all of this situation. And I said, and we used to be included, but now I'm excluded because I am that single guy. And I said, just understand there's no reason for this unless somebody dislikes me. <laughs> and if they dislike me, then I'm okay. That's cool. 
But then the other thing I learned was I can also create those social situations. I don't have to wait to be invited. And so I invite people to do things. I host game nights. I organize events. I, you know, that same group from which I was excluded, there's a group of those now, like four couples, they're at my house every New Year's Eve. I am the New Year's Eve house. Because if I want companionship and if I want friendship, I can go ask for it. I can cause it. I can generate it. I don't have to be lonely. You know, and do I have lonely times? Of course I have lonely times. Married couples have lonely times. In a marriage, people can be lonely at times. They can be lonely alone. They can be lonely as a couple. Everybody experiences different kinds of loneliness. So problem orientation or solution orientation. You feel by yourself, don't be. And if they don't know how, think about it, explore it, reach out. There's so many resources in the world right now. Go try things out. I'll go to a Zumba class, you know, and I might be the only guy in that Zumba class. I don't care. You know, I'm out and I'm doing something and I'm engaging and I'm exploring and I'm trying things. And, you know, you don't know whether you'll like something unless you give it a shot. What's been the hardest part for you about being single, both, both before your marriage and after your marriage? Um, hardest part about being single is the feeling of sometimes being isolated and unappreciated and undesired. You know, it's like, Gosh, it'd be nice if I got the invitation to the party sometimes. Well, I do sometimes, so shut up. I don't have to have somebody filling my dance card 24-7. And we also have to learn how to be happy by ourselves. You know, we have to have things that we enjoy, you know, whether it's gardening or movies or books or music or cooking or athletics, or the outdoors, or whatever it is, we have to have things that we enjoy. And don't deny yourself of those things that you enjoy. Don't become a martyr to loneliness. Don't sit there and beat your chest and go, oh, I'm so lonely, and nobody loves me, and all these other kinds. Okay. So do something. Um, I, had, <laughs> I had a graduate student at San Diego mm -hmm. one time. And we were talking about dance injuries and how to treat dance injuries. It was for a dance class. And I asked the question, you know, okay, if this happens to somebody, it looks like they twist their ankle and people are going, oh, elevate it, ice it, isolate it, you know, all these different things, um, you know, wrap it, do all this stuff. She said, I would just tell them to get up and we were all kind of shocked at how callous she was in saying that. But I've thought about that a lot of times. You know, her name was Karen, you know, and she was just kind of this blunt person that was a challenge. But her reply of get up 
it resonates to this day where something happens to somebody and they are just like, oh, this, I'm, this is so awful. And it's like, great, you're right. It's awful. Get up. Get up. It's awful. Get up. Get out of bed. Mourn as long as you need to mourn and not one second longer. There's heal. Just... Heal as long as you need to heal and then not one second longer. There's a scripture actually in Jeremiah that says, get up off thy face. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. And it was funny. We were listening to M. Russell Ballard one time. And he's, he's a religious leader of ours. He was speaking to a group of singles and he was just very, very honest. Mm -hmm. And he said, get, well, so when I wake up in the morning, I look over and I see my clock and I'm like, well, I'm still here meaning here on earth. I, I guess I got to get up. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. You know, like, and, and there is, there's that, like, I think you have done an incredible job. I mean, ever since I've known you, you've always been this, this beacon of light to everybody around you. And it's just been so, so cool to watch. Well, do you have any, any any parting thoughts, man? We probably should wrap this up here because it's getting, and then I'll and then I'll let you tell people how to connect with you and stuff too. But sure, that's fine. Um, actually, there are two things that I'll share, and both of them are scriptural. Uh, one of them is out of the Book of Job, and it's Job twenty three, and it's one through ten, and you know you just come across those touchstone things in your life that speak to you. And the first time I came across this, it hit me and it hits me every time. And it says, then Job answered and said, even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No, but he would put strength in me. There the righteous might dispute with him, so should I be delivered forever from my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. I can never get through that without it hitting me. Because I think that's what we feel as single so often is unacknowledged, unappreciated, unknown. We feel anonymous. We feel isolated from people, from the spirit, from whatever. But we are never alone. And what's in store for us, we don't know yet. So we shouldn't try. Something I came to realize years ago in terms of the Lord. He's smarter than I am. He created me. He created everything around me. 
How dare I ever second guess him? How can I possibly trust in other voices when his is the perfect voice? It's the right voice. It's the all-knowing voice. It's omnipotent. It's omniscient. It's omnipresent. But if we're not looking for it, we won't see it. We won't find it. We have to look for it. And then the other scripture, and this will take me a minute to tell because it's going to be another one of those divine placement everythings. Um, I came before across... You, before you jump into the next part, though, just because yeah. I, I, want, I want you to tell, because I don't remember if you said where the scripture is in Job. Job 23, 1 through 10. Okay, cool. Okay. Oh, go ahead. So the other one that I came across that was so meaningful to me was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. That, if, if there's something that goes on my tombstone, that's going to be it. But, um, yeah, I found that one, and it was like just perfect, 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 perfect. Well, I'm not a scriptorian. The fact that I know these two is about, I have fished my limit right now. You know, I can use an index and a search engine and find things, but I'm not the person who can go, well, you know, in the book of this or the book of that, no, that's not me. However, um, I was in the last draft lottery. When Vietnam was going on, I was in, I was of an age that I could have been drafted. And they used to televise it. And it was like they had, it would be like a big bingo ball cage filled with ping pong balls. And on each ping pong ball was written one date of the year. And this was televised. And they would roll that thing and a number would come up and they would go April 7th. And they would put April 7th up on the board in the number one position. And if you were a young man born in that year on April 7th, you knew you were going. And they spun the drum again, June 28th number two. And they started going through the year. And I remember sitting in my kitchen watching on our white plastic television, on our little portable TV, and just white knuckling because I thought, oh, it's a scary world and I'm not ready for that. And so I sat there and I watched and they spun up the first 50 numbers and I wasn't called. I was like, okay, <sighs> hunker down. And they called the first 100 numbers. I wasn't called. And I started relaxing, doing a little math in my head about fractions and about, well, that's almost one third of the guys my age. Called the first 150, first 200, nothing. The first 250, nothing. The first 300, nothing. I thought, did I miss it? Did they call my number and I didn't catch it? Did I zone out? And I sat there. They called the first 350. Nothing. Number 356, August 16th, my birthday, which meant 95% of young men my age would be called long before I would. And I went, wow, 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 wow. There were only nine numbers beyond mine. And I thought, okay, I'm going to count myself lucky. And that number, I will never forget my draft number. 
you know, 356, boom, right there. And then one day when I was going back through scriptures, I went Proverbs 3, 5, 6. My draft number is my scripture. And I just went, you know what? The Lord has a sense of humor. And he winks at us. He gives us all of these little wonderful signals throughout our entire lives that we just have to be open to. We have to perceive them. We have to go, hey, there's a tap class. Hey, I better put my dad's phone number on my resume. Hey, this, hey, that. I better go back and get the thing in the grocery store. These are the things that allow us to be happy. When we understand that our life isn't going to be perfect, but it's going to perfect us. It's going to shape us. It's going to make us into who we're supposed to be. So that's kind of me. And that's kind of how I look at life. Um, it's, it's a constant source of education. It's another reason I went into education. It's great to learn things. It's great to, to bank stuff. And we will remember and know what we're supposed to remember and know. And at times we'll forget what we're supposed to forget in that moment so that we can then know more after that. Um, so you asked me about my podcast. Yeah, Jim, go ahead and share with us your, how people can get a hold of you a little bit about your podcast. Yep. Well, okay. You can find me at Jim Christian on Facebook. Um, but also, uh, I have, I'm a huge Disney fan. And Disney is a source of happiness for me. It is a happy place. I love their philosophies. I love their standards. I love their artistry. I love their storytelling just so much, you know, and ever since childhood, it's been a connecting point for me. So during the pandemic, I started a podcast that is called That Old Mouse Magic. And on there, I interview guests and we tell stories that range all the way from people who just like to go to the parks and have experiences and fun anecdotes and traditions all the way up the ladder to cast members and performers and Disney legends and Imagineers and artists and authors and people who have been up at the top of the game. But in all of it, we just stay on the positive. You know, we look at what the good, happy things are. So there's that old mouse magic uh, that's on Instagram and Facebook, and you can find it on Google Podcasts. Spotify, Stitcher, um, Apple Podcasts. And then I also have a web page that's called Mickey's Concierge Travel because I just love to advise people on how to get the most out of Disney parks. You know, when they want to travel, and it's not a business, it's just something I do because it makes me happy and it makes other people happy. And that's on Instagram and Facebook. So there's ways to find me. So you, Mickey's you, ConcierseTravel.com, is that the web page? It's M Mickey's Concierge Travel uh, is on Facebook. And then ThatOldMouseMagic.com, ThatOldMouseMagic on Instagram and Facebook. So there's a whole bunch of ways to find me. Well, Jim, we'll, we'll wrap up on that note. But thank you so much for being here with us and really sharing your story. And like, there is just, that was just so much fun. and. I really love this conversation. Thank, Thank you. you. And, and I, will, I will sign off 
with my sign off on my podcast, which is always remember what a gift it is to make other people happy. Now, if you've made it to this point in the podcast, I'd like to invite you to go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. I don't know how you got here, but that way, if you ever want to get back here again, it's right there for you in your subscriptions. And if you haven't already joined us, one of the really cool things that I do that's free for anyone that would like to participate is each Monday morning at 10 a.m. Arizona time, I host a group coaching call for Happy and Single. Anyone is welcome to come on, and you can even receive a little bit of one-on-one coaching time with me, depending on how many people are in the call. Now, every now and then that schedule changes, so you can go to the website happynsingle.com to be able to look at the schedule and also to be able to find the link to the Zoom room. Now, at the same time, if you would prefer a more one-on-one type of coaching experience where you can sit down and share your hopes and dreams and, and just kind of the stuff going on in your world, then there's another option available for you as well. Now, the bulk of my business is actually doing one-on-one coaching. If that's something you're interested in exploring, I've got a few spots open in my coaching practice. You can just message me on Instagram at the It's Possible Guy, and we can sit down and have a chat. And it doesn't matter where you're at in the world. I've worked with people across the world. I do everything over Zoom, so it actually makes it pretty easy. Thank you guys so much again for listening. And go out and live your adventure. Thank you.